Good morning. So happy to be with you this morning. It's uh, good to be back in my beloved Southern California. I was uh, reared not far from here in Upland. I uh, grew up on uh, 15th and Euclid and uh, thought uh, that I would spend my entire life in Southern California. Uh, didn't go far away uh, from home to go to school. Uh, met my wife at uh, Biola University. Uh, she was reared in Bolivia, South America, of missionary parents, the Train family in Camiri, Bolivia. Uh, we were uh, in the, uh, the Buena Park, La Mirada area for uh, 10 or so years. Uh, I was a full-time worker at Grace Bible Chapel in Fullerton, uh, participated with you all at uh, SEYF events and at uh, Verdugo Pines and the like. And then the Lord uh, led us off uh, to Dallas and then up to... Uh, Dubuque, Iowa, at Emmaus Bible College. I taught full-time there, Bible and theology for 10 years, and then served the last 13 years as president. Uh, just uh, this summer, we moved back to Southern California uh, to work at uh, Biola University, my alma mater, and it's uh, great fun to be back in Southern California. While this Arctic blast is freezing uh, most of the country, uh, I'm scraping just a tiny little bit of frost off of my window of the car and uh, saying, this doesn't seem that cold, actually. It seems uh, to be fairly mild. Uh, it's, a, it's a joyous time to be back uh, with you. Uh, my oldest brother, Bob, uh, with whom I'll have uh, lunch uh, today, actually was uh, married in this room. And I think the last time I was here was when we were remembering... Uh, Bruce and Bertha Alice Merritt uh, at their memorial service. So good to be with you. Thank you for having me. I'd like us uh, this morning, uh, due to the Christmas season, to turn to Luke chapter 1 and consider uh, the advent of our Lord and the announcement uh, to Mary that she would conceive the Son of God. It's an amazing story uh, to think that God would pick a young woman and allow her to be blessed in such a manner as to be the one who would bear our Savior. I'm reading from Luke chapter 1, uh, the passage that Mark read to us during the breaking of bread, beginning with verse 26. Now in the sixth month, that would be the sixth month of the pregnancy of her cousin uh, Elizabeth, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth. It wasn't a big metropolis or anything. There, there is no word for city. You've got to pick a village or, uh, or uh, 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 probably the best word for this would be town. It's about the size of a town. Uh, the strange thing about Nazareth is it's not where you would expect any important person to be born. Now, first of all, it's in the province of uh, Galilee, and no one of any importance would come from Galilee, it would seem. And Nazareth was a Roman military outpost, and nobody liked the fact that the Romans uh, were occupying uh, the country. Uh, it's just not where you would expect our, our Lord uh, to have grown up. So the angel Gabriel appears to a virgin. Uh, the word here is very specific. Uh, in the Greek language, it's uh, highly specific that she had never been with a man. Uh, quoting from the Isaiah 714 7, passage, uh, the word Alma there is a word that means young maiden and is not 
though it's usually used of virgins, not absolutely clear that it would have to be a virgin. Uh, but the Greek word here is absolutely clear. She is a virgin, never having been with a man. To inversion, engaged to a man whose name was Joseph. Uh, though my translation says engage, it's a more powerful word than that. It's betrothed. Uh, more than half of the engagements that you and I would enter into as far as planning a marriage break up before we actually uh, get married. Uh, we don't take our engagements nearly as seriously as they did. It was a legally binding contract. Uh, it uh, could only be broken uh, by divorce. Uh, it meant you were getting married, and in some ways you were even viewed as, as if you were married, but you didn't live together. The uh, young bride-to-be would live in her father's house and the young man in, in his father's house, and they'd wait uh, for almost a year. You can begin to see why you would wait for a year, is that you wanted your bride to be pure, and you were making sure uh, that she had never been with a man and that she would be your virgin bride. So she was a virgin and betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the descendants of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. Uh, Joseph uh, is in the line of the promised Messiah. Uh, Mary was as well. Uh, on one side of her family, she was descended uh, uh, from Aaron and was of the priestly clan. On the other side, uh, from uh, the line of David. There had been promises and covenants of God uh, to King David uh, that he would give him uh, a son that would rule over his throne and that his throne would last forever. Uh, he even remarked that this wouldn't be merely Solomon. He said, you're speaking about the far distant future when you say there'll be uh, an eternal throne and a son who would rule over my throne forever. Uh, that is a wonderful promise. So Gabriel, coming in, said to her, Hail, favored one, the Lord is with you. The actual term here for being favored is the, the term that we would often translate grace. Uh, he's speaking of how marvelously God has chosen to bless Mary with grace. If you think about it, all of us are recipients of God's grace. That's why we're here this morning and why we love him and why we're studying his word. Uh, by a gift that we do not deserve, he has blessed us and enabled us uh, to have relationship with him. But this blessing that he is giving to Mary is, is far beyond any blessing he's given any of us. And that's why he says, you should be amazed at how God has chosen you to be especially favored. The Lord is with you. Now, she wasn't doubting what he was saying, but uh, these were interesting words. She wondered, what could he possibly mean by this? She was greatly troubled at the statement, kept pondering what kind of salutation this might be. So as he goes on and explains further, you can see what she's saying. In her mind, her mind is still trying to process what he'd said at first. Has that happened to you before, uh, where you're listening in conversation to someone speaking to you, and they continue to go on and explain more, and you're still back on the first sentence trying to say, now, I I'm going to 
process this more slowly. I've got to think my way through this. Uh, maybe you need to back up and repeat yourself because I'm still concentrating on those very first words you said. Mary is an amazing young lady. Uh, in those days, they married younger than is our custom in America today. Uh, we've become especially uh, careful about marriage, and so uh, many people will wait a long time to get married, and they will uh, try to accomplish many things in life before they get married. Uh, not so in their culture. We're not told how old she is. We don't know how old she is, but she would be younger than we probably would be comfortable with, but that was their custom to marry younger. And so here is a very mature, very godly young lady who's being told the most amazing thought that God himself has picked you and you are going to be honored because you're going to bear the promised Messiah that you've been longing for. Now, she knows these Old Testament passages. You will see a little later on in the story uh, when she is uh, singing out uh, her song of praise to God uh, to uh, her cousin Elizabeth uh, that she knows the Old Testament scriptures very well. The, the song is filled with references in the Old Testament. In fact, it, it seems as if uh, she had been uh, thinking of the, the birth of Samuel and the uniqueness of his situation and that she was very familiar with Hannah and that she was musing all about Hannah as she has uh, thought about those songs. So a wonderful young lady, a godly young lady, a lady who knew the scriptures well that God has specially picked to conceive the Son of God. Now, some of us are curious individuals, and I'm curious, and I'm a theologian, and so I think deep thoughts about theology, especially when my kids ask me questions I can't answer. And I've thought about, could God have saved us another way? Could he have saved us without sending his son to become one of us? Now, at first, you might say, don't speculate. Uh, don't think thoughts like that. Uh, but you may recall that the Apostle Paul himself in Galatians chapter 3, as he was discussing the law, said, hypothetically, if there had been given a law that we could have kept, then salvation would have been based on the law. Now, that's rather speculative. He's saying... Had we been able to be obedient enough, as God told us, be holy as I'm holy, if we'd been able to keep the law, then there would not have been a need for a Savior. And we could have been saved on our ability to keep the law. You know from having read the book of Galatians or the book of Romans that it's quite clear that None of us has ever kept God's law perfectly. None of us is capable of pleasing God completely. In fact, uh, the sin of Adam, the, the fact that we have been cast into uh, a birth of a sinful race, the fact that we, from our earliest days, rebel against our parents and rebel against God should confirm to us we are desperately in need of a Savior. Savior. 
Some of you might have speculated in your mind, well, couldn't God just let it go? Couldn't he just say, tell you what, I don't want to destroy you. I'm a God of love. I'd love to let it go and just say, never mind, let's forget the whole thing. But as you read in Scripture, that's not possible. God is not only the God of love, he is the God of justice. He is a righteous God. And it requires that our sins be paid for. Now, how in the world is that going to take place? Were we to pay for our own sins, we would be destroyed. He'd have to separate himself from us forever. It is amazingly creative. In fact, beyond our understanding, I think, to imagine the great lengths to which God went to save us. And the most beautiful thing, the most surprising thing, uh, the most important aspect of our faith is that it was necessary for our sins to be born and paid for, and though the penalty was death and it would destroy us forever, if God himself in the person of Jesus Christ were to pay for our sins, he would have the power to die and to resurrect and to live forever to be our mediator, to enable us to have fellowship with God. What's so startling to us is the beauty and yet the horror of the whole thought. That the second person of the Trinity, God the Son, would humble himself to become one of us and experience life just like us, to live a righteous and innocent life, and then voluntarily take our sins upon himself at the cross. This is such a beautiful thought that Satan couldn't imagine it. And he thought if he could have Jesus assassinated, that he could ruin God's own plan. If I could get him killed, he would not be able to save the people. And yet God, as Romans 8.28 tells us, is able to turn the tables on the evil that is done and work good out of bad. And he used the opportunity of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ to make him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. A most amazing thought. Jesus would be the sin bearer. God himself would become man. Sometimes we wonder as we relate to God, does he really understand me? Does he understand my struggle? Has he ever felt like I have felt? And the truth of it is, he understands better than we do. His son, Jesus Christ, has experienced all the rejection that we've ever experienced, all the mistreatment, all the misunderstanding, all the difficulties of life, all the prejudices of life. He's experienced all that. He has felt that. My daughter just gave birth to a son. This will be our third grandchild. My wife was able to go back to Dallas where they are and be a part of that birth. 
And as I, by phone, was talking to her a few minutes later and was asking her, well, what, it was, what was it like? She said, well, this was the fastest of the three births, but the most painful. She said, it was excruciating. Being a man, I only can hear that theoretically. I can't actually imagine truthfully what you ladies go through in doing that. But I know it can be difficult. My middle son, when he had an accident water skiing with us and hit his nose very badly on the ski and it was bleeding to the point we had a hard time stopping it. When we took him to the doctor, uh, he says his nose is broken, but not from hitting the ski. Uh, this was broken being born, going through the birth canal, he broke his nose. And we're like horrified at the thought, the poor little kid, what did we do to him? But Jesus experienced all those things. Can you imagine what it would be like to have Jesus in your womb? Can you imagine what it would be like to birth Jesus, the Savior of the world? It's the most amazing thing. He's experienced everything. He experienced being an infant carried by Mary. For by Mary. He experienced being a little child. He experienced growing up, experienced the loss of his father, the need to care for his mother and his brothers and sisters. He experienced it all. And all of this is coming to Mary as a young woman, devout, loving of God, asked to do the most marvelous thing graced beyond grace. And yet, though I'm not a woman, I picture, can you even handle news like this? What would it be like to have an angel appear to you and say to you, he himself is amazed how graciously God has blessed her. Verse 30 says, don't be afraid, Mary, for you found favor with God and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. The Hebrew name of which would be Joshua. God saves. Now, that is amazing. The Savior, the promised Messiah, will come through me. I will carry, I will bear, I will rear the promised Messiah. Verse 32, he will be great. In fact, the greatest man who has ever lived. He will be called the son of the most high. That term most high is the name for God himself. And Hebrew in the Old Testament, it usually translates Elion, the name most high, God himself. He'll be the son of God himself. In our culture, we don't appreciate that nearly as much as we should. Uh, for them in their culture to be the son of someone was as if you were the carbon copy. All of his attributes... All of his abilities, all of his rights and privileges were transferred to you as son. To be the son of someone was to be like that person. Mary, this baby in your womb 
is going to be the son of Elion, the son of the Most High God. And the Lord God, Yahweh himself, will give him the throne of his father, David. He is the one. The one that was promised. When David said, you're looking far into the distant future when you promise me that, to rule on my throne forever, a son of mine, a descendant of mine will rule for my throne forever. That's not Solomon. This is the most amazing promise you're giving to me. And Gabriel's revealing to Mary, this is the one. This is the promised one. He will receive the great King David's throne. He will reign, he will, excuse me, verse 33, he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Now, this is absolutely miraculous. A person who could live forever, a person who would rule perfectly forever. He will rule for a thousand years, we know. and He will pass that kingdom into God the Father's hands, and we will enter the eternal state and enjoy fellowship with God forever as Jesus continues to reign. He came offering that kingdom to the Jewish nation, and he longed for it to be established even in his first coming. But though he came unto his own, his own received him not. And he had to begin to announce that he would have to come again, and that this coming would be the time of his suffering, and that the triumph that had been predicted would not take place until his second coming. Now you wonder how a young girl like this could respond to such news that in her womb would grow the one who would rule forever. She does not doubt, as Zacharias did earlier in the chapter, when he was punished for his doubt by being unable to speak until his son was born. She doesn't doubt, but she says, can you explain to me how this will work? It seems fantastic. How? Verse 34, how can this be since I'm a virgin? She's never been with a man. The only way that women have ever conceived up until this point is to be with a man. This is not her case. How will she become pregnant? Well, the angel answers, and it is uh, spoken of in a, a brief and beautiful way. The angel said, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the holy offspring shall be called the Son of now, the spirit is a spirit. He has no form. Uh, there is not a physical interaction taking place here. It is a spiritual interaction. And the Holy Spirit himself comes upon Mary, overshadows her, and she conceives, and she conceives a holy offspring that we will know to be the Son of God. So if you were to ask, who is Jesus' mother? His physical human mother 
is his Jewish mother, Mary. So Jesus is Jewish. He has his mother's eyes. He has his mother's mouth. He has his mother's disposition. But his father is not Joseph, though he became the legal father when he actually went through with the marriage and married Mary. But his father is God himself, God the Holy Spirit. And this protects him from inheriting the curse upon man for the sin of Adam and the sin of Caniah. He is protected from being sinful. He never sinned. He had no sin nature. He was perfect. You might wonder for a moment, is it possible for us to be truly human and not sinful? Everyone I've ever met that was human was sinful. Adam was human and was created sinless before he rebelled against God. Yes, you can be completely human and sinless. And that is our Savior, the perfect Son of God. Now, some people uh, go almost crazy with that thought and, and begin to imagine the most amazing things. We write Christmas uh, carols regarding uh, the fact that uh, when the poor baby wakes from the lowing of the cattle, no sound he makes. And we imagine that the little baby Jesus never cried. I don't consider the crying of a baby to be sinful at all, and I imagine uh, that he was far more like us in so many ways uh, than we at first imagined. There were some that even said he'd never even soil a diaper. He was so perfect. You could, you could go crazy with all kinds of thoughts of these, these perfections, but I think we need to understand that people viewed him as real, a real human being. The person who was his best friend, his cousin John, who wrote the Gospel of John and the Epistles of John, said, I know him, I've been with him, I've handled him. He's a real person. I testify to you, he's real. So to grow up with Jesus would be to play with a boy in the neighborhood, but yet a boy who loved God, a righteous boy, a boy who never sinned, a boy who never disobeyed his parents. Now, you remember when he was 12, he scared his parents. You remember when he was in the temple and he stayed behind and was about his father's business and his parents couldn't find him? Have you ever left one of your kids here at the chapel and, and headed home and had to come back for one of your kids? Uh, I'm not confessing whether I have or not, but I'll say it's quite possible to think one of you has the kid and you don't and to have to go back looking for him. Yeah, there are some, some surprises in rearing Jesus, but he never disobeyed his parents. Uh, he lived righteously. What a wonderful opportunity it would be to rear the baby Jesus. Sometimes we think that Mary is so different from us that we should be incapable of relating to her. But that's exactly the opposite of what is intended by this passage. 
The passage is here describing fairly normal human experiences like the conception of a child, being pregnant with a child, delivering a child, so that we would understand it's normal, it's natural. He's truly one of us. Some of us push Mary to such a high plane that we imagine that we couldn't relate to her at all. No, she's a real person too, an ordinary person, though a righteous person. And it should cause us to think thoughts along with her. Like when she says, I don't get how this could happen. I've never been with a man. How can this be? That is a righteous response. So if God is working something in your life or in my life where we say, I don't really understand. It's not sinful to say, how can this be? Now, it's sinful to say, don't you dare do this. It's sinful to say, I don't believe it. But it's not sinful in prayer to say back to the Lord, how can this be? I'm surprised by this. When I was a young person growing up in Upland and Upland High, there's something that comes over when you, when you become a teenager. Uh, as a young boy, as my other reports to me, I was uh, very interested in spiritual things and loved the Lord deeply and uh, really was going on for the Lord. But going through junior high and high school was getting tough for me, and I began to rebel. And uh, part of it was just coming to understand uh, the faith that had been taught to me by my parents. I was saved at a young age. My mother herself led me to the Lord at the kitchen table when I was five years old before I ran off to kindergarten at Sierra Vista. She, uh, she was frustrated as, as a young teenage boy, and I'd say, like, well, how do I know the Mormons aren't right? You know, if I'd been born into a Mormon family, I might be a Mormon. Or how do I know that Jehovah's Witnesses aren't right? You know, if I'd been born into one of their families, wouldn't I be one of them? And rather than getting overly frustrated with me, she said... Why don't you study those things for yourself and see for yourself? Now, as I look back on it, I'm amazed at her patience with me. So I started studying. I started, I'm sorry to report to you, started studying Mormonism as a freshman in high school. Started having Mormon missionaries come to my home. They'd sit with me in the living room and start telling me uh, the story of the things that they were doing. And my mother's praying for me in the room next door. Uh, they came numerous times. But what it did is it began to stimulate me to study things for myself and to learn these things for myself. And by the time they were at their sixth visit, I opened my guns and let them have it and explained to them that the Jesus to which they were referring was a man who became a god and that I too, as a man, could become a god and I could rule one of these planets out there and all this and that this was not the Jesus of the Bible that I knew the Jesus of the Bible. And I sent them away and they never came back. God wants us to understand that Jesus was born of a real woman who had real experiences and that his experience was real. And so it's okay to say to God, how can this be? I'm perplexed about these things. 
I'm a virgin. And he says it's going to be taken care of by the Holy Spirit. God himself will miraculously cause this to happen. And then he gives her a real-life example of his power to accomplish these things. Verse 36, he says, Behold, even your relative Elizabeth has also conceived a son in her old age, and she who was called barren is now in her sixth month. In fact, as soon as this is all over, Mary runs off to spend five months with her cousin and to see for herself this really is true. Are you kidding? Elizabeth is pregnant? And she can see the pregnancy in Elizabeth when she's with her, having only now begun to understand what's taking place in her and how it's taking place. Isn't it comforting? Isn't it kind of God to give us real-life examples, almost like tokens to say, See, if I can do this, then you can trust me for that. If Elizabeth is pregnant, you'll be pregnant. If I can miraculously cause her to be pregnant, you can trust me in this. When you suffer through great disappointments in life, it's hard to trust God. And you at times say to yourself, I don't know. Is he there? Does he listen? Does he care? Does he know? And thoughts like this may come into your mind. But surely each of us can say to ourselves, I know God is trustworthy. I know he is loving. I know he hears my prayers. I know he understands my situation. And I can tell you why. Because at this point in my life, a marker was set down. And I know him to be trustworthy, and I know him to be true, and I know that whatever he decides for me will be what's best in his plan for me. Now, the scary part is to watch that take place in all the characters in the Scripture, and you realize none of them had an easy life. All of them had great difficulties. Pick any hero you want in the Scripture. I was studying through the Joseph story this year and enjoying it greatly with an adult mind because I'd only studied him as a kid. He was going to be the most powerful man on earth. He was even going to tell Pharaoh what to do. But before he rescued his people from starvation, how did God train him? His brothers rejected him, nearly killed him, sold him into slavery in Egypt, ends up in Potiphar's house as a slave, but God blesses him through that experience, is falsely accused by Potiphar's wife, thrown in prison, forgotten there. But in each case, there were these little glimmers of hope. Remember when everything he touched in Pharaoh's house, or excuse me, Potiphar's house was blessed? And Potiphar says, God is surely with you. Look, I don't have to think about anything. Or in prison, everything he did was blessed by God to the point where the jailer says to him, hey, run the place. You take care of everything. God's blessing you. And though we may not yet be where God intends to take us, in the case of Joseph, ruler over Egypt, second in command of Pharaoh, but really telling Pharaoh what to do. Though we may not yet be where God wants us, has he not given us 
enough examples of his faithfulness to us that we can trust him for the unbelievable, the unfathomable, that which we think that no one can solve? How could this happen? Well, the answer is in the next verse. For nothing will be impossible with God. That's not a hard verse to memorize. And it's one we should quote to ourselves over and over again when in human experience we say, this is impossible. Nothing is impossible with God. God can accomplish anything he wants with us. Sometimes we're afraid to ask for the impossible. And yet, what did Jesus say? You have not because you ask not. Ask and you shall receive. Do we not catch ourselves all the time negligent because we do not ask? Carol and I have been through a lot in our lives, and some of these uh, testings that we've been through have been very difficult to experience, very hard on us. Our life has not been easy. Now, let me share with you one pile of stones in our life, one story that we keep looking back on. We say, that was a miracle. And if you can do that, you can do this. Our middle son, Robbie, was born, uh, we found out later with the broken nose, but we didn't know it at the time. But when we took him for his very first appointment, as just a few days old, his pediatrician couldn't find a pulse uh, in his extremities. Uh, No pulse down there uh, in his legs, no pulse in his arms. And he says, uh, I think there's something wrong with his heart. And he gave us uh, a referral to the number one cardiac surgeon in in all of Texas uh, down at uh, Children's Hospital. We went to see him. They did a sonogram of his heart and could see a coarctation, a narrowing of his artery, the big vessel coming out of the heart that, where the, the blood is pumping out was squeezed by this narrowing of his, his aorta. And he said, uh, we're going to have to do surgery. That's going to have to be removed. Uh, but he said, frankly, it's too dangerous uh, for us to do it uh, now. We need to wait till maybe he's eight or nine years of age, uh, until he's a little older and stronger. Um, and we said, well, what will it mean for him? And he says, well, he'll run around and try to play with the other kids, but he won't have enough blood flow, and he'll just fall down. And so I said to him, well, we're going to pray, and we're going to ask God to heal him. He shook his head and he said, it doesn't work that way. Come back in six months and we'll check him out again. We were not expecting that God would have to heal him, but God is God. And in faith, we decided to ask God for the impossible and the unbelievable. And so Carol and I prayed told everyone in our family to pray, told everyone we knew in Dallas to pray, we told everyone in Southern California we knew to pray, and we said, pray that the Lord heal him. They had on videotape the coarctation six months earlier, and we came back for the six-month appointment and did the sonogram again. There was no coarctation. His aorta was perfectly fine, and the surgeon was mad. (laughs) I think surgeons are disappointed when they don't get to do surgery. 
He was, a, he was a Texan. He wore cowboy boots to work. We sat in his office and he said, we're done. I never need to see you again. There's nothing wrong with his aorta. And I said, well, I know what happened. We prayed and God answered our prayer. And he said, well, you know, sometimes in science, things happen that we can't explain. I said, I can explain it. We prayed, and God answered our prayer. And so I tell you, the reason why God regularly, in hero or heroine throughout the entire scripture, places them in difficult situations and causes them to be forced to choose, will I trust in God or not? Then he strengthens them to trust in him for even greater things is because that's how he develops us. Nothing will be impossible with God. Now this should be enough to cause any one of us to fall down and nearly faint. First of all, just to see an angel. Secondly, to hear what the angel is saying. And thirdly, to try to process the impossible is going to happen in my life, and I'm being blessed beyond belief. But this young girl says the most amazing thing. We are familiar with this passage because we've read it so many times. My daughter and I were going through some difficult experiences through the winter and spring last year, and we started this habit of sharing verses with each other uh, via email or text uh, as to what we were studying and what was a blessing to us. And so uh, she was blessing me with verses after verse, and, and I was sending verses her way. And completely out of context, several months after the Christmas season, she sent me this story. I'm thinking like, I read that at Christmas time. Why is she sending it like in February or something like that? This doesn't make any sense. Sometimes we're so familiar with stories that we read right past us and it never hits us. But verse 38 hit me like a ton of bricks because what she said, and it's just because I read it out of context in February, not in December, what she says is the most amazingly submissive and trustful statement we could possibly say to God in any of our circumstances. It shows how mature she is. Mary said, Behold the slave girl of the Lord. Be it done to me according to your word. And because I was reading it in February, because my daughter sent it to me out of context, and because I was trying to figure out why did she send this to me, it hit me. We should be saying to God regularly in all of our experiences, be it done to me according to your word. Now, there's, we should say, I submit to you. I welcome you. Your plan for my life. That was the huge struggle for me as a junior higher and a high schooler. And why I began to rebel is because I didn't trust God in advance. I was afraid to say yes to God. I, I wanted to take his advice under advisement and, and 
process it and see whether I agreed with him or not before I would do what he'd asked me to do. It is cleansing and freeing to be able to say to God, I accept. I'm your servant. You are my creator, my God, my savior. Be it done to me according to your will. That's the Christmas story. That's the story of the transformation. That's what makes it possible for us to break bread and to thank God for our Savior. Is the real thing happened to a real girl with a real boy born in her life, but a boy whose father was the Holy Spirit himself, the perfect, sinless Son of God, our Savior, Tested in all ways like we, yet without sin. That perfect Savior is one who understands my plight, understands my situation, can be a perfect and sympathetic high priest for me. And may I learn from Mary and repeat her words often to the Lord. I am your servant. Be it done to me according to your word. Oh, Father, we turn to you and say, no truer response was ever uttered. No more important response than Mary's. May we be submissive to you. May we honor you and your plan for us. May we trust you. If you send our way, glimmers of hope or testimonies of truth or stories to remind us of how greatly you are to be trusted, such as even Elizabeth is pregnant. May we remember these, cling to these, believe these, and may we agree with Gabriel, nothing is impossible with you. We praise you and thank you for this Christmas season. In Jesus' name, amen.